Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Raymond Johnson. I serve as one of the elders here. It's a delight and a privilege to have you with us this morning. We would love to invite you back for one of the other services that we're having this week, not only on Christmas Eve, but next Sunday, Christmas morning. We'd love to have you here and to worship with you uh, here at Christ Church Westchester. If you come on Christmas Eve, from five to six, it'll be a delightful time. It's one of my favorite services of the year. And as I speak a few of my favorite things, I want to mention uh, a comment I made last week that I would have liked to clarify. I, in a passing comment, I said, uh, this person is one of my favorite, uh, one of the best preachers at our church. What I was trying to communicate, and the reason I'm clarifying now, is that, I, that there are preachers at our church that are good preachers that are worthy to come and to hear uh, preach to us. And one of the things that concerns me as a local church pastor is often when I'm asking people, who are your favorite preachers, they never mention their local church pastor. They always say some national figure that they never meet and they never get to sit in front of and that doesn't know anything about their life. And that's a concerning thing to me because the people who know the most about you preach regularly to you in this building. So members of our church, what I was trying to communicate is I spoke of Tim, and I'd say the same for Renee or Dan or Stephen or Will or any other of the men who regularly preach here, is that they are worth hearing and they are a blessing to me that I would wake up on a Sunday morning or come back on a Sunday evening to listen to them exhort me because they know my name and they know what's going on in my life. And I was trying to create a precedent for you, but when... You say something and you don't write the comments down. You just say whatever on the top of your head, and it's not always helpful. So that's where we were, and that's where we are. But those are a few of my favorite things and some of my favorite preachers. So now if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through uh, the book of James for the last several months. Our time together this morning as you're studying with us today would be much more enjoyable for you if you had a Bible open and you kept it open throughout the duration of the sermon. And if you do not have a Bible here with you, just reach underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a Bible somewhere around there. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, please feel free to grab one of those and take it with you. Consider that a gift from us to you so that you can learn more about Jesus Christ and Him crucified today. But this morning, we're going to focus our attention in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. But we're going to read chapter 3, verse 13, all the way to chapter 4, verse 12, as we see a little bit about what James is doing as he structures this next section of his epistle. So I want to show you two things before we dive in today. Uh, before we read James 3, if you already have it open, look with me back at James chapter 1, verse 26. Familiar verses James wrote to us. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James, speaking of religion, we noticed, if you were with us, he moves away from that word and he begins to speak of faith throughout the rest of chapter 2. And as he moves into chapter 2, into chapter 3, he actually takes those same themes from those verses and he begins to expound upon them and write about them in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. The very first thing that he does in chapter 2 is he speaks about the way that we care for the poor. Now, in many ways, when we're reading James' letter, it almost sounds like to be Christian is to care for the poor. But what, one of the things we want to highlight is that that's not what James is saying. But he's saying if we care for people who have nothing to give us back in return, 
then we're actually demonstrating the reality of our faith, a living faith, a faith that is taken root in our life. We care for people who can't give back to us, and we do that in a variety of different ways, as we've discussed the past few weeks. But then in chapter 3, he goes to one of the other themes in verses 1 through 12. And James begins to write to us about the way that we speak. Not only do we need to care for the poor, the widow and the orphan, but the way that we use our words actually demonstrates something about our faith. Because James knows it's all too easy for us to gather on a Sunday morning and to sing these great Christmas songs while they're with other people and confess these truths and read the Bible out loud and turn our attention to it and then use our speech the rest of the week to destroy and to burn and to tear people down instead of using them proactively in our lives and specifically in the life of the church to build. We are to be people who use our words to build others up. We do that by preaching, but we do that by simple things. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? And praying for one another. And now James comes to one of the other themes. It seems that he hasn't mentioned it, but if you notice in chapter 1, verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks, typically when we think of wisdom, we're just only concerned with how we think. How much information have we taken in? And if we have the right amount of information, then we will be a truly wise person. But James, once again, wants to explode that category for us. It's possible, and perhaps some of you are here, to be a person who has a lot of information and know nothing of wisdom. To have more facts than anybody else in the room and not walk in the way of Christ. To know everything that you're supposed to say when someone asks you a religious question and know nothing of a godly life. So James writes to us about two wisdoms. And as we look at the next section, we'll see that it's not just two wisdoms, but James also writes for us about two friendships, one with the world and one with God. And then he writes to us about two types of judges, yourself and God. And once again, James, is a good preacher, is illustrating for us, this is how you will know, are you truly wise? Are you truly a friend of God? Are you truly someone who is preparing for the judgment of God? So he writes to us in these verses to continue to expound upon those themes because James knows that it's all too possible, and in fact, really probable, for people to say, I follow God, and demonstrate nothing of it in their lives, in the way that they think about others and care for others, in the way that they speak to others or about others, and in the way that they actually demonstrate that wisdom with the beauty of their life. So let's begin reading James chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 12. James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, And he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to the Lord. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Father, I ask for help now in this time together as we turn our attention to your word. I guard my mouth, and we pray that you would give us wisdom from on high, that you would help us to see truth in the text. And Father, to not only see the truth in the text, but to rearrange the furniture of our lives as a result of seeing the truth that is in the text. Father, we pray that we would not simply gather more information this morning, that we would not be a people who accumulate facts today, but Father, that we would be a people who grow in wisdom and learn how to walk in the way of Christ. Father, that you would teach us the beauty of wisdom. God, that you would humble us now as we turn our attention to your word. Father, help us to think, to think rightly so that we might live rightly and demonstrate the beauty and worthiness of the gospel. Father, we ask that you would help us now because we know that the enemy would seek to snatch this word. He does not long for us to be wise people because he does not long for us to thrive in the goodness of the gospel and he does not long for people to see and hear the beauty and wisdom of the gospel. So God, we pray that you'd help us to focus. Focus our eyes on your word. Focus our minds on your word and what is being preached about your word. And Father, we pray that by your spirit that you would drive us either into deeper repentance and deeper faith or first-time repentance and first-time faith for those who are here and not yet Christians. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Some people have the idea that church and the scriptures are first of all, and really primarily, a warning. Don't do this. Be careful about that. You're in danger if you do this. 
Beware of that in all of those people. We think of religion as simply a series of red lights along the way, stopping us just when we're getting up to speed and about to arrive at some place or take off and really accomplish something. So we live jerkily in our lives, alternating between accelerating and braking because we never really know what we're supposed to do. Am I supposed to move forward or not? Stop here or go there? Should I speak? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The type of people that after every single conversation you have, you're playing back the mental tape. Did I say the right thing? What did they think when I said that thing? Should I have done that thing? Was that the right thing to do? Did that help me? Will that help them? Are they, am I confused? I felt that way for nearly 20 years of my Christian life. And to be honest, as your pastor, I'm still not entirely over the fact that, of thinking that the church is primarily keeping me from making mistakes keeping me from sinning in my life, keeping me from simply going wrong. If that's what you think, I hope to change your mind today. The world will always seek to define wisdom by visible standards that exalts oneself over others, by the list of accomplishments that we can accumulate and gather to say, this is why I matter. Now I know I did it right. Here are the things that prove my worth and justify my existence or membership in this church. But divine wisdom, James says, is mainly identifiable through one's private patterns of righteous behavior, performed in an attitude of humility that James says, and James says, produce works. Wisdom produces works And these works result in a legacy of peace. Three points will frame our time together in this text. Wisdom demonstrated, worthy wisdom, worthless wisdom. Notice first, wisdom demonstrated. Look with me again in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James begins with a question, like any good teacher, asking questions to drive people to the end of their knowledge. He's trying to expose their spiritual bankruptcy because when they see it, they're then able to make a positive faith decision. It's helpful for us to realize that we don't know it all. So James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Well, friends, it is a trap. From aspiring teachers, verse 1 and self-appointed sages, verse 13, in the ancient world, to social media entrepreneurs or discernment bloggers in the 21st century, as soon as someone raises their hand to say, I am truly wise, James would slap it down because wisdom is not shown through self-endorsement. Or, as one of my friends would say, if you have to remind everybody how smart you are and how wise you are, then you're not really that smart and you're not really that wise. James says that the truly wise person demonstrates his wisdom, verse 13, by his good conduct, literally by a beautiful life. They demonstrate their wisdom by the way that they live. It becomes an attractive way to live. This word for good conduct is a favorite of James, but it was also, for those of you who are members here and were with us when we were studying 1 Peter, is a favorite word of Peter's. Peter wanted us to live a certain way in the world. He wanted us to flourish as we lived out our Christian existence, and James is no different. 
Because James, like Peter, knows that we're prone to think of religion as a series of things not to do, but both Peter and James are trying to free us up so that we might actually live, be people who do things and live a beautiful life for all the world to see that becomes attractive not only for fellow members of our church, but for the unbelieving world so that they might not only hear the gospel, but they might look into the church and see lives changed by the gospel. Members of this church, one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel in our community and in our country and around the world is that unbelievers look into local churches and they see people fighting about everything and they say, no thanks. I get enough of that all the time. At work, at home, online, days off, while I'm with friends and on vacation. If we want people to find our community attractive, then they not only have to hear the beauty of the gospel, they must hear the truth of the gospel. We have to preach the gospel. But they have to see lives changed by the gospels and friends not only here on Sundays. They have to see lives changed by the gospel Monday to Saturday. And they will never see that if we don't invite them into our lives. If we don't bring people into our homes, if we don't invite them into those secret moments of our lives so that they can see, warts and all, all that is taking place in how our lives are changed by the gospel, then how will they know the impact of the gospel in every sphere of their life? James knows this. So he says, the truly wise person demonstrates their wisdom. They don't just have a certain amount of head knowledge, a base level of facts, but they have a beautiful, attractive life. James says wisdom isn't theoretical. It's immensely practical. It sounds a certain way, verses 1 to 12, in the way that we speak. Remember, speech can't be pouring out words that are divisive and words that are unifying, words that are destroying and words that are building. That's an unwise life. And it looks a certain way, James says, verses 13 to 18. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10, if you don't know where 1 Kings is, just look in the table of contents or just ask somebody around you. 1 Kings 10 is a book in the Old Testament recounting uh, the people of Israel's history, reminding them about life after David. And in 1 Kings chapter 10... Kingship is transitioned from David to Solomon, and we're learning about Solomon's life. We find this, and I want you to see if you can spot the connection between what is seen and what is heard. Verse 1. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions, which is exactly what we would expect. He's wise. He's prayed for wisdom. So I'm going to come and I'm going to find out how wise this person is. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. Notice, I knew you could talk good, but did you live good? 
but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told of me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set on you the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you the king that you might execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. We have the tendency to think of wisdom as esoteric knowledge. If I have enough information and can impress people with the right words, having spoken in all of the right ways, then I am a truly wise person. If I can comment on every hot button issue, if I've read all of the right books, if I know how to cite the right people in all of my correspondences with others, if I'm able to claim friendship with those who have power and prominence and prestige, then I am a wise person. There's knowledge that always allows us to simply discern the one right way in contrast to all of the many wrong ways, so that our life, if we're honest, is held together in a respectable way for all the world to see and marvel at. That's often what we want from wisdom. We don't really want to be wise. We want to be perceived of as wise. We want people to think of us as wise. That person knows their stuff. But let me ask you, Has it ever transferred from head to heart? Friends, the Bible nowhere places any value on knowledge that remains merely cerebral or even creedal because nothing is known until it reshapes life. Members of our church, that's a danger for a vibrant, healthy, young, reformed church. It is possible to have the right facts and live the wrong way and be the wrong person because of it. James knows that you can have all of the right creedal affirmations and go straight to hell. And you can cerebrally think all of the right things and know nothing of the power of God. Nothing is known until it actually reshapes our life. Let me ask you, has your belief in Christ changed anything about the way that you live? or the way that you give of your finances. Not only in the mount, but the way that you actually see the way that you give. Is it an act of worship or simply a transaction? Has it changed anything about the way that you serve? Perhaps serving in areas that you would prefer not to serve or who you will serve. Perhaps serving people that you find difficult to serve. Has it changed anything about the way that you speak? Even if you never verbalize those words, you're still speaking while you're running the mental tape in your head. Or the way that you share that information online. Or type about it in a text. Or send it to somebody in a quick email. Does your agreement with our confession of faith as members of this church affect your way of life at all? Or were you simply able to get through the membership interview and say, yes, I believe that. Now I'm going to go and do what I would like to do. 
If nothing has changed, then James says perhaps nothing has changed. James says that true wisdom produces works like godly speech and love for the poor and concern for the orphan and steadfastness under trial even when our life is in shambles. Wisdom is not learning how to hold our life together so that it's respectable for people to see. Wisdom can be seen in brokenness and in weakness. Wisdom can be seen in poverty. Wisdom can be seen and is often demonstrated even when people do not have all that the world values. And that, James says, produces, verse 13, the meekness of wisdom. A beautiful life of humility. A wisdom that walks the humble road of meekness as it responds to adversity or replies to a friend or shows benevolence to the disenfranchised. You see, James is actually telling us exactly what we observe in the Gospels when we read about Jesus' life. Everything that Jesus said was true, but one of the most astonishing things when we're actually reading the Gospels wisely is that we see that Jesus' life was a beautiful life. Jesus knew how to live life to the full, a life that was attractive while speaking truth. He was full of grace and truth, loving people who hated him and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to those who didn't want it. Jesus knew how to rebuke those who were his enemies while at the same time extending to them mercy and grace. Jesus knew how to spend time with Judas when he knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus' life was a beautiful life. And James is telling us that wisdom, true wisdom, will produce that same type of thing in us, a humble, beautiful life, a wisdom that walks the humble road. James tests any claim to supposed or alleged wisdom by a life and a demeanor of supposed wisdom. He says, you might have all of the right facts, but you lack meekness, you are no more wise because wisdom produces works and those works result in a legacy of peace. Wisdom demonstrated, notice second, worthy wisdom. Look with me in verses 17 and 18. Now I know we're not gonna go through the passage straight, but I want us to see the connection between the top and the bottom of the passage and end in the middle. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. True wisdom, James says, find its origin in God. Verse 17, it's from above. It's not from earth. It actually immediately explodes the category for us because we think it comes from the accumulation of facts. James says it's not from the accumulation of earthly facts. It's not the accumulation of earthly knowledge. It doesn't come from the wisest of earthly people. You don't get it from Solomon because Solomon got it from God. Wisdom comes from above. It is poured out on us from on high. If we want to be a truly wise people, then we will seek the Lord. Friends, how could we seek wisdom any other way? And why are we seeking it any other way? As we try to position ourselves close to people who have power, 
Or we try to gather the type of knowledge that we think that might not only impress, but help us to succeed and make our mark and leave an indelible mark on the world. James says, that is not wisdom. You can leave all the indelible marks that you want. Wisdom is from above. It comes down from on high. It isn't something we simply learn. We can't conjure it up by our own strength. We can't earn it by our own willpower, trying hard enough. Spirit-given wisdom, James says, comes down to us, and verse 17 is actually characterized by both internal and external fruits. Good fruits that are expressed toward other people. Verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now notice the way James begins and ends his list. He begins and ends the list with internal qualities. Internally worthy wisdom is pure, it's holy, and it's sincere, it's honest. It's fundamentally motivated by goodness, and it's not simply playing the crowd. Isn't that often how we try to use wisdom? If I say the right things, then the right people will like me, and I'll go to the right places. Oh, the places you will go. And it's not necessarily holy because we use it to position ourselves and to broker deals. And notice that sandwich between the internal qualities and these foundations of wisdom are visible qualities that are expressed towards others. Truly wise people are, verse 17, peaceable. They're gentle. They're open to reason. They're full of mercy and good fruits, they're impartial. None of which are qualities that you need to express toward yourself. Rarely have you ever had to be gentle towards yourself because you are always favorable towards yourself. You don't have to be merciful towards yourself. You always think that you deserve mercy. You don't have to convince yourself that you're right. Of course you think you're right. Everybody thinks that they're right. I think that I'm right all of the time just like you think that you're right all of the time. Wisdom, James tells us, isn't simply about how things work out for you. It's how things work out for the people around you. It's quite the opposite of what we think. It's not about how we might be wise. It's how our wisdom impacts and affects others. James says one of the tests of wisdom is observing how your life affects the other people around you. Are you a peaceable person? Building bridges so that there would be peace or burning bridges so that people know this is the line. Is your parenting gentle? And I realize that even saying that is a loaded thing. I am not talking about do you spank your kids or not spank your kids. You can discipline your kids gently and you can avoid spanking and be aggressive with your kids verbally and neglect all of your duties to parent them. Is your parenting gentle? Are you trying to shape little people so that they might become mature people and hopefully Christian people? Are you gentle with other people? Would the people in your life say that you're gentle with them? That's the real test of gentleness, isn't it? Of course I'm gentle. Am I? Do your interactions with other people, particularly those you disagree with, demonstrate that you are open to reason? Or are you unwilling to be persuaded? You're very willing to have a conversation with anybody about anything, specifically the things that you're very passionate about. 
but you have no intention of being persuaded. In fact, quite the opposite. You have every intention of making sure that they're persuaded and overwhelming them with all of your, quote, facts. Whatever they are, wherever they come from, it doesn't matter. How quick are you to condemn others and give up on them? Or do you show as much mercy to them as you've shown to yourself? Do you have favorites? Favorites to the exclusion of other people that are hard to deal with. Favorites to the exclusion of people that are needy. If you are friends, you're not really impartial. True wisdom, James says, bears distinct and recognizable fruits. So any claim to wisdom is tested. It's ultimately tested by an observable, beautiful, good conduct in life. And that good conduct is seen, verse 18, in a person going through life and making peace with those around them. If your lives, friends, are simply graveyards for all of the relationships, then perhaps it really isn't everyone else's fault. Maybe it's your fault. If everybody you interact with is just destroyed and devastated, and you're always able to conclude all of the jerk people that are always placed in my life, then perhaps the problem isn't all of those people. James doesn't allow us to point externally and say, look at her, look at him, look at them, look at what they did. James holds up a mirror. He says, what do you see? The long-term fruit of a truly wise life is lived in peaceable unity with others, James says. And verse 18 results in a harvest of righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. James says the exact same. But anyone who knows more about farming than I do will know at least this simple fact, that the harvest comes after time. If you want to see the harvest of righteousness, you can't simply resolve at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to be peaceable for the rest of Sunday. I won't even make fun of Cowboys fans. You have to be peaceable for the rest of your life. You can still make fun of Cowboys fans. So James tells us that we have to bear fruit that yields a harvest. And that happens over time with a life that is committed to living this way. But what happens to all of us in every area of our life is that we give up on it as it's getting hard because it doesn't seem to produce the immediate fruit. Right after high school, just like many of you, I had many gifts that were given to me, and one of those was some monetary gifts, and I thought to myself as a relatively young Christian, I want to learn to play guitar. So I spent all of my graduation money to go play guitar, bought a guitar, bought a book to learn how to play some notes, played for about four days, my fingers hurt, I didn't know how to strum anything, I gave up on it, I put it in a closet, I left it there for years, eventually gave it to somebody in college. Why did I give up? It was hard, and I wasn't a rock star by the end of the week. But friends, anything worth doing takes time. And the only way to become competent and gifted, to learn how to live a beautiful life, is constantly committing ourselves and submitting ourselves to living the beautiful life. That is why, believer in particular right now, there is a constant call for repentance to you in this church. You have to constantly repent and recommit yourself to the beautiful life. 
You have to keep saying, I'm going to put that to death again. I'm going to throw that off again. I'm going to live this way. I'm not going to talk like that. I am going to say I'm sorry. I'm going to admit that I'm wrong, and I'm going to tell them that I'm wrong. And then I'm going to recommit myself to these principles and learn the discipline of the beautiful life. But James says, that harvest of righteousness, righteousness in our life where the life begins to look beautiful, where we are actually changed, and it's yielding fruit in other people's lives, only happens over time as we begin to see the fruit of it in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Because everything that takes place in your life does not happen in a vacuum. You want to know how effective you are at being a Christian? Look at the lives of the people immediately most close to you. Are they better people because of their relationship with you? Your closest friends, your spouse, fellow members of this church, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers. Have they grown at all, even if they're all unbelievers? Have they grown as to be better people because of the type of life that you are living around them? James says that wisdom produces works, and these works result in a legacy of peace. So be patient. Wisdom demonstrated, worthy wisdom. Notice third, worthless wisdom. Look with me in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. As opposed to the good conduct and humble deeds that are outward expressions of true wisdom, a false wisdom brings forth an evil conduct and an arrogant boasting. I am living the right way, and all of you need to take notice of my rightness. James specifies as he focuses in on representative aspects of this evil conduct for us, but first looks to the inside of the person. Verse 14, what does he say? In their hearts. The problem isn't out there with those people, but the problem is in here with me, or as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a, a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will actually be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The implication from Jesus is, is clear. You don't see clearly because of your sin. You think you see clearly. Everybody thinks that they see clearly. Everybody thinks, I have the right interpretation of the data. And Jesus says, no, you don't. And James coming right behind him says, no, you don't. You do not have the right interpretation of the data. You're not able to see clearly. Your sin prevents you from understanding the situations around you, which is why God has not saved us to be alone. God has placed us in the context of the local church family to give us people so that they might help us make our way through the world. For the person in here who is the biggest loner, Jesus invites you into a beautiful life that is surrounded by people. 
You might not be married. You may never have kids. You might not have family that you're close to, but you do not have to be alone if you are a Christian. God has given you his friends as your own in the context of the local church so that you might be able to live a beautiful life and make your way through the world and so that you might be able to see clearly because you're not able to see clearly on your own. That's why you're so easily offended. That's why you're so quickly annoyed. That's why James says you have selfish ambition in your heart. That's why James says you're jealous of what other people have. That's why James says where those things are present, there will be every vile practice in your life, even if it looks respectable to other people. It will be a life that destroys and it will not be beautiful. Outward behavior is an overflow from the heart. So false wisdom is characterized by, verse 14, a bitter heart of jealousy, the wicked desire for someone else's abilities, someone else's possessions or status. That should be mine. I'm entitled to these things. I deserve what they have. Haven't I earned it? And James doesn't just leave it there, but he wants us to see that it's bitter jealousy. It's a resentful heart filled with competition. Everybody else is a competitor. And we're simply just playing a chess game in life. And how do I get to the other side to get my queen back? So we have all of this jealousy and all of this anger that is seething just underneath the surface of our very respectable Christian life. But that's not all, James says. There's a selfish ambition. That's another characteristic of the sinful heart. A prideful inner desire to promote oneself or one's personal concerns or one's platform or party, one's prestige or prominence without any reference to God and any concern for the genuine needs of other people. It doesn't matter who we hurt along the way because we're just telling it like it is. James' words here serve as an audit of our hearts. And they invite us to an introspection, this renewed reliance on Christ's righteousness. James wants us to see that we are incapable of appropriately interpreting everything, and he wants us to bring us all the way to the bottom of that so that we might say, what am I trusting in to make me righteous? And how would I know if I'm truly wise and making my way through the world rightly? Is it all of the stuff that I'm able to take with me along the way, or the people, or the benefits, or is it that I'm actually following the way of Christ? The opposite of repentance from one's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is covering them up and continuing to play the hypocrite, James says. And neither of those situations are wise or sincere. Where we boast about our alleged wisdom while we're jealous and envious and bitter and have ambition in our hearts, telling people, look how good I am, how presentable I am to the world. And in that case, James warns, verse 14, do not boast or be false to the truth. Don't lie about it and do not lie to yourself, which is one of the great concerns of James throughout the entirety of his letter, isn't it? He's concerned about people being self-deceived. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're self-deceived. You think, I understand. I'm able to understand and rightly interpret the data. I think of myself as a Christian person. Does your life show that you're a Christian person? Does your life confirm that you're a Christian person. And if you are a believer here, 
and you are enslaved to sin that you are not repenting of, one of the reasons that you struggle with so much assurance is because of the sin that you refuse to repent of. Sin breeds doubt. We can't have assurance when we're enslaved to sin, whether that's private things that we hide and look at on a computer screen or things that we do behind closed door when we yell at other people or the way that we act on the car or whatever it is that we drive to church on Sunday mornings or how we characterize other people when we speak about them or the way that we work when we are uh, performing for our bosses and colleagues and coworkers and all of those moments. What does it actually say about our life and what we believe? And if you want to know why you're struggling with assurance, it might be that in all of those moments, you're proving that you're not who you think you are. Believer, repent and live the beautiful life. It might cost you more than you ever wanted it to. Not just financially, but relationally. Not just relationally, but career. Not just in your career, but in your family. Not just with your family and friends, but everything about your life. But James says the beautiful life yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Don't be a hypocrite and don't be insincere. Don't lie about it or be false to the truth. Turn away from that falseness and trust afresh the beauty of the gospel. Humbly trust the all-wise God rather than vaulting all of your false, foundationless wisdom. In verse 15, James attacks the origins of this facade of wisdom. It is not, he says, from God. But notice that it is not just unwise for James. It is, verse 15, notice how he describes it. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. You see, we typically think, okay, if I'm not a wise person, then I'm an unwise person. I'm not a smart person, then I'm just not a smart person. James says, if you're an unwise person, you're going to hell. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. Now, if you're reading carefully with me, you're probably astonished at the way that James describes it. It's not that you just don't understand, it's that you don't have a right relationship with God. It's not simply that you don't have the right facts, it's that you don't know the right Savior. It's not that you're just in opposition to something that you don't want to do, it's that you're in opposition to God. Unbeliever, if you're here today, your foundationless wisdom proves that you are in opposition to God. It's not only that you don't know the right things about God, it's that you don't know God. And as a result of not knowing God, you will go to hell for your sin. And the call of the church today is the same as any Sunday if you're here in every faithful evangelical church. Repent of your sin and follow the all-wise God. Give up the appearance of wisdom and follow the way of wisdom, the way of Christ Christ, who humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. He came down and he lived among us and he lived the beautiful life, the perfect, wonderful, flourishing, truly human life, modeling for us how to live and dying for us so that we don't have to die. Jesus did not simply live a good life so that you would have a model of how to live a good life. He did do that. But Jesus went even further. He went straight to the cross and he died in your place so that he would give you his spirit and empower you to live the truly human, beautiful life. If you would throw off your sin and cling to Christ, if you would turn away from this unwise, earthly, unspiritual, demonic life and turn towards something that is from above and heavenly and beautiful and ends in a righteous harvest. Unbeliever, come to Christ. What is keeping you from coming to Christ if you are here today and have not truly trusted Christ? Is it the pride of life that James speaks about where you boast about it? but you live false to the truth?
Friend, repent. And if you want to learn more about that repentance today, you're in the best place that you could be. You can ask God to forgive you of your sins right now, and he will do it. He promises if we simply confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Ask God to be merciful to you, and he will be merciful to you. But if you're still confused or you want more help, take one of those Bibles, find me at the tunnel. We'll have pastors at some of the other doors this, uh, after the service today, or just grab one of the other members and say, I want to know how to live the truly wise life. Would you tell me? It would be a privilege to open God's word with you today. Apart from gentle, the gentle, convicting work of the Spirit, who is strong enough to keep up this facade? James says nobody. Worldly approval and demonic lies easily lull us into this self-deception where we're led astray. And he wants us to see that though we can never really see into the hearts of others and only with dim perception understand our own, the fruit of all of this is a false wisdom. A false wisdom that leads to, verse 16, disorder and every vile practice. It disrupts the community. Even though a person may be able to deceive others temporarily, James says, what's going to happen is it's going to yield disorder. It might not yield the disorder this side of eternity, but it will ultimately yield disorder. A disorder that shows that we have not followed the Christ or as Jesus says to the Pharisees, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. What is your life producing? You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And it doesn't just affect them, does it? Because that sin never happens in isolation. It is always affecting the other people around us, which is why some of you have been devastated so greatly by the sins of other people in your life. Perhaps people that are here today or people that you're gonna be spending the next week with, particularly next Sunday, and it's hard for you to be there or you choose to not go because it is hard to be there. Friends, in all of those moments, God meets us in the brokenness of our life and helps us live in wisdom as we forgive because we have been forgiven, as we extend mercy because we have received mercy, as we proclaim truth even though other people live a lie. Let every man be a liar and God be proven true that God can change the heart and change our disposition towards others, even others who have sinned greatly against us, that we might love and be a community characterized by love, a loving wisdom, because wisdom produces works. And these works result in a legacy of peace as they build a unified people. When others succeed, what is your initial response? How do you feel when someone else is promoted or gets an opportunity that you feel that you deserved? Is your life, specifically members, is your life in this church building or burning things down? Are your words exhorting people? It is your duty to use your words to exhort and encourage and admonish and to fan into flame with your words other people's faith. Are your actions sacrificial and serving, giving of all that you feel that you're entitled to? Are you tearing down and taking away and protecting what is yours? James says the truly wise life is proactive. 
It's proactive in its speech and it's proactive in the way that it lives. It's heard by the ear and it's seen in the life. And what is the result of all of that? Church, it is a harmonious people. Do you want to help us change the world for Christ? Do you want to help us reach Westchester with the gospel? Help us build a beautiful local church of people who gather around the gospel and are unified and using their words in their singing, in their praying, in their preaching, in their teaching, in their encouragement and their admonishment, and even in their rebuke, in their discipline, whether it's formative or corrective, in their evangelism, and in all of the ways that they write and exhort one another to create a healthy, harmonious, unified people so that it bears a beautiful fruit that's attractive to the world and a blessing to us and a blessing to everyone else. Friends, the challenge for you this week, this Christmas week, is not how do you get blessed and get what is yours, but how can you be a blessing to others because wisdom on high took on flesh and lived the truly wise life to die in your place and invite you into the way of wisdom. This is the way. Walk in it. Let's pray. Father, the great danger for all of us here today, young and old alike, is not simply that we will make mistakes. We most certainly will make mistakes. But it's to think of wisdom as something where if we have the right information, then we won't make too many mistakes. Or we won't make the wrong mistakes. We'll make the right mistakes and show that we're wise. We thank you, Father, for these words from James that explode all of our categories and show us that wisdom is not only heard or learned about, it is seen and demonstrated. Wisdom works to produce fruit and that yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Father, we pray that you would help us to live a truly human life as we learn to live as truly wise people in this wicked world. Wise people who impact others for good. That we would be wise people who do spiritual good to others as our pastor Will prayed earlier in the way that we disciple other people in the way that we evangelize other people in the way that we care for other churches and think of our own lives and our own church. Help us to live the truly wise, truly human, integrated life trusting in Christ who even when his life was filled with great pain and it seemed as if everything else was falling apart, was able to walk in the way of wisdom and to demonstrate that wisdom produces fruit. Father, may, may we be a people in abundance or in poverty, in sickness or in health, until death, who live this way. This is the way. May we walk in it. Amen.